Well, friends, I want to invite you now to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16. If you didn't bring a copy of the Bible with you or don't own one, you can grab one on the back of the pew or the seat in front of you and take that with you. That'll be your, our gift to you. You'll, you'll, you'll need to have it open in the next little bit of our time together. Because at this time, each week when we meet as a church, we take a portion of the Bible, which we believe God has, has used to speak to us in all of its words, and we try to understand it word by word and verse by verse on its own terms so that we can hear from Him. That's what we think happens when we come to understand the meaning of the Bible. So please do have that open in front of you as we walk through it together now. Every now and then I've come across a thought experiment. I wonder if it's ever been posed to you. If you were to find yourself on the backside of some sort of massive disaster in the world, something that, that just came through and wiped out all our modern technologies and returned us back to a world before smartphones, before air travel and air conditioning, before electric lighting, before washing machines and convection ovens and whatever else you might want to put on your list of things you depend on every day for your life, how much of what you depend on could you recreate from scratch? What could you figure out how to reverse engineer? Let me go ahead and tell you this. You do not want me taking up oxygen in a world like that one. In that kind of post-apocalyptic scenario, I am absolutely useless to you. I mean, I can go fetch water if there's some available nearby. I can hold forth on the historical causes of the American Civil War, the differences between the branches of Protestantism as they played out and through the Reformation in different, different countries in Europe. And I can offer the stuff that's you know, really great for being a well-rounded, reasonable, wise person, offering some perspective on this disaster that's befallen you. But if you want to eat a, a meal that evening. I'm useless. You don't want me around. My life is full of gadgets that, that I don't understand. <laughs> I, 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 my life depends on a ton of processes I can't control for sure, but also just don't even get. I have basically zero understanding, for example, of how my vehicle works, how its engine functions, all the parts working together, how the computer in it interacts with the engine to keep the thing moving. I'm not sure I could reinvent a wheel much less an automobile. And don't get me started on the internet. I mean, basically everything in my life now runs through the internet, whatever that is. I've watched shows. I've read articles on how it was developed. I know a little bit about the history. And I, and I read words on a page that describe how it works and why. But I'll be honest, it, it just feels like black magic to me. I don't get how these zeros and ones tie back to whatever sitcom I'm streaming on my TV screen. I could never build it if it were broken. All that said, there are some things that my life depends on that I don't understand that I do know how to use. There are some things that, that uh, on the deeper inner workings are black magic to me that have been explained to me at least on a level that I can, can use. I couldn't rebuild my car's engine, but I know how to start it up. I couldn't explain to you why gasoline works to, to, to power it, but I know to put gas in. And I know how good it is to have a car when you've got farther to go than you want to walk or when you're out in the middle of a rainstorm. I've used my car to see family that live a thousand miles away. That turned the two-month journey into a two-day journey. It was boring, to drive all the way down there, but basically stress-free. 
And I don't know how all those zeros and ones turn into a Braves game that I'm streaming on my computer, but I do know how to plug in my router. I know how to choose the right wireless network out of my drop-down menu. I know how to open a browser. I know how to type in the link. I know how to click on the image that comes up, and I know that it'll take me to a place where I can enjoy the show. I don't get how it all works, but I have been shown some of it, and what I've been shown helps me to use it and to enjoy it, to enjoy the benefits of these good gifts I can't fully understand. In some ways, our relation to the, to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is a lot like that. And so if, you're, if you're new to Christianity, you're still wanting to know what do Christians believe about the world and about God. One of the main things you need to know is that Christians believe God exists as one God, but in three persons. That he's a being totally different from us. We have a certain kind of being as humans. We understand ours probably better than most beings. But God is a totally different kind that can be both one and three at exactly the same time. We believe this because it's taught in the Bible, not because we completely understand how it works. And sometimes, sometimes if we're honest as Christians, we can be so preoccupied by all the things we don't understand about the Trinity, about all the deeper interworkings of this being that's so not like us, that we can just kind of check out on the Trinity, not think about it much, not pay much attention to where it shows up in the Scriptures, just because we feel so intimidated by it. Sometimes all that we don't understand about the Trinity can keep us from enjoying and embracing what has been explained to us. When the Bible talks about who God is, it pulls back a curtain to show us the beauty of God's life. Even if it's showing us something beyond our ability to conceptualize perfectly, its goal is to show us something beautiful and then to invite us into enjoying it. The Bible shows us and tells us what it does about God to bring us into his joy, to know what he knows, to love what he loves. The Bible hasn't told us everything we might like to know. And even what it has told us, we might have trouble understanding or explaining to anyone else. But the Bible has told us exactly what we need to know to enjoy him, to trust him, to love him to pursue him. And our passage this morning in John chapter 16 is one of several places where Jesus does this work for us, pulls back a curtain to show us a glimpse into the inner life of God, into the God who exists as one God, but in three persons interacting in love for one another for all of eternity. And when Jesus pulls back that curtain to show us into the inner life of God, the reason he does so is to comfort his friends. Jesus has just told his closest followers, men who had left everything to follow him, men who had put all their chips onto him, they were betting on Jesus being worth it. He's just told these men that he's going away. And to them, surely that would have felt much like what it would feel like if somebody's recruited you to a new team, a new job. They told you how much they want you there. Their vision is what gets you excited. You take the job, then they're out of there. Your advisor goes to another school. Your executive goes and takes another job at another company. Now you're left there on your own. I I came for you, and now you're leaving. That's got to be how they're feeling. Meanwhile, the pressure has been mounting. Jesus has just said that they're going to be hated by the world just like he's been hated by the world. The world won't like them any more than they like him. So how are they? Of course they're feeling weighed down by this. 
Of course they're feeling sorrow. That's how they're feeling. And Jesus' response to them is one of the most striking statements in all of the gospel. In chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, It's to your advantage that I go away. He says to people who are grieving the fact that he's about to leave them, It's better for you if I do. How in the world can that be? We're talking about Jesus here leaving them. And he's saying to them they're going to have it better when he's gone. And by implication, he's saying to Christians today that we have it better than they had it then when he was with them. That we who have never seen Jesus take a snack and turn it into a meal for 5,000 people have it better than they had who watched him do it and ate what he provided. How could that be? Our main job this morning is going to be to understand how that's true. And it all comes down to the one that Jesus calls the helper or the Holy Spirit, whom he is going away so that he can send. That's the heart of our text this morning. I want to read it for you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I pick up in John 16, verse 4, the second half of verse 4, and read um, through the end of that section in verse 15. This, friends, is God's word to us this morning. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they don't believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you'll see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged I still have many things to say to you but you can't bear them now when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Two points this morning, friends, on how the helper helps us. The helper helps us see our need for Jesus. And the helper helps us see the goodness of Jesus. The helper helps us see what we need. And the helper helps us see that Jesus supplies it. Point number one, the helper, his job is to help us see our need for Jesus. The first reason that Jesus gives, that it's good news for him to go and for the helper to come, is given in verses 8 and 9. Look back with me at what we've already read. Verses 4 through 7 is the setup. They're troubled in heart. 
Sorrow has filled their heart at the thought that Jesus is going. And Jesus is saying, but you're not paying attention to why I'm going. It's good for you that I go. Let me tell you why it's good. And then verses 8 and 9, he does that. It's good news because when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's why it's good news. So, if we want the comfort that Jesus wants us to experience... We got to understand why, what he means rather by conviction and what he means by sin, righteousness, and judgment. For us to get the comfort Jesus means to give to his followers in this text, we need to understand what he's talking about when he says the Spirit will convict the world. And we need to understand what it is that the Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So let's go down into those weeds together for a minute and then I'll zoom back out and try to tie it all up for us. What does Jesus mean by conviction, first of all? When I hear that word, the first place I go in my mind is to a courtroom. I think about a judge with a gavel, hearing a case, seeing the evidence, sizing it up, and bam, dropping the hammer on a sentence for a criminal offender. And that's how we most often use this particular English word in our lives. The Bible also teaches that's that's something the Lord will do. He does promise he will judge all evil in this world. Even the evil that goes under the radar, that gets swept under the rug by the powers that be in our time, one day it'll all be brought to light and seen for what it is by the God who sees all. But but that's not actually the kind of judgment or conviction that Jesus is talking about here. There's a different word that he would have used if that's what he had in mind. That kind of conviction isn't the reason the Spirit is coming into the world. He has something else in mind here. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, a guy named Don Carson, he says that in every other place in the Bible, in the New Testament, that this word is used, it has to do with showing someone his sin so that he can repent of it. This isn't a sentence passed on a guilty party, once and for all declared to be guilty. This is a conviction that is provoking something in someone so that they see they're feeling convicted of something that was in their life that they that they didn't see before think about the think about the context here jesus has just said to his friends you're going to go out and bear fruit and he's predicted that when they go out in the world in his name the world isn't going to like them very much the same world that's about to kill him is going to want to kill them too they will be hated for what they offer when they offer jesus that's like a, that, that kind of opposition to Jesus is just this brick wall they're going to run into over and over and over as long as they go. And if it's all on them, they actually aren't going to have the rhetorical power or the creative intellectual genius to break past that wall and show people that Jesus is really the one they need all along. They don't have that power. Jesus knows that. But he has good news. For these friends, he's sending out into a world that will hate them by instinct. He has good news for these friends. He's going to the Father. And when he goes to the Father, he'll send the Spirit. And when the Helper comes, it'll be the Helper's job to show people who would otherwise reject Jesus why they need Jesus so badly in the first place. It'll be the Helper's job to go into the person to the level of the heart that none of our words or ideas can possibly reach. It'll be the Spirit's job to go into that person and bring conviction that it's all true. And the purpose of this conviction the Spirit is bringing is not to to punish them 
but to protect them from punishment, to show them their need for a Savior so they can be pulled out of the sin that they had chosen for themselves and given a different kind of life through Jesus. Uh, Back in college, speaking of this type of conviction, what I think Jesus has in, in mind here, I can remember, I can still remember vividly this moment when I experienced a conviction like that, when a friend loved me well enough to tell me I have this super annoying tendency to cut people off in discussion before they finish what they're saying. And any of you who know me well and are now hearing me say that I was brought under conviction by this, about this 20 years ago, are thinking, it's taken 20 years and you're still doing that to me? I mean, this friend was like, how, do you really treat your wife that way? And if so, how do you put up with it? And we had only been married like six months at that time and it's been 20 years and she's still putting up with it today. It was an awakening moment for me. Even if I haven't fully learned the lesson, I'm still trying to grow past that. I'm still trying to see. And now I, now I have a new category for that tendency. Not only do I see that I do it, but this friend helped me to see what was going on when I'm doing that. You know, Matt, what that's showing is you think what you have to say is better than what they have to say. That's arrogant. Or, Matt, you think you already know what they're going to say before they say it? That's arrogant to think you can see right into them and, and, and know it without listening and hearing them out. Or, Matt, you, you're just afraid that if you don't pounce now, you won't be able to get your point across. That's That's fear, not love, that causes you to jump in when they aren't done yet. And you know what? This friend who showed me that I do this, he didn't do that out in front of everybody to try to embarrass me or shame me. And he didn't do that to me in order to pass judgment and say, Matt, you are officially hereby and forevermore known as an arrogant guy who cuts people off in speech. That's who you are. Now, he he showed it to me one-on-one, in private, because he wanted me to see it so that I could grow out of it. He brought conviction to me in order to purge me of this sin struggle I couldn't have even called sin at the time. That's the Spirit's job. That's what the Spirit comes into the world to do, to take people who will hear about Jesus and think, no way, no thanks, don't need it, and convict them, show them that they actually do need it. So what will he convict them of? That's the, other, that's the other details we need to understand here. If that's, what, if that's what Jesus means by conviction, and the helper's role will be to show people something they haven't seen yet about themselves, what is it exactly that he will show them? That's what Jesus continues to say in verse 9. He will convict them about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. And if conviction is about showing somebody something they didn't see before, We can add another layer to this. The Spirit's job will be to show people, to show the world, they were wrong about sin. To show them they were wrong about righteousness. And to show them they were wrong about judgment. So take sin, for example. The world doesn't believe in Jesus, verse 9 says. He will convict them concerning sin because they don't believe in me. And Because they don't believe in Jesus, the Spirit has to convict them of sin. How does that work? What's that connection? Here's what I think he means. Until you see sin as a problem, you won't be interested in what Jesus offers. 
If, it, if you don't believe in Jesus, it's because you haven't yet seen sin. <laughs> and, and, and he's talking about something that sounds like it's from another planet from the one you're living on. You won't think you need him if you don't see sin as a problem any more than somebody in South Florida feels a need for a down jacket in October. You want a jacket when you're cold. If you're not cold, you look at that jacket and you think, I mean, it looks all right, I guess, but I don't need that. Why would I put that on? Why would I pay for that? You want Jesus when you see you've got sin and need forgiveness. But here's the problem. On our own, we don't see it. We just don't see it as a big deal. Sin against God feels abstract, ho-hum, maybe just religious talk. Not a reality that we live under or feel weighed down by until the helper comes. The helper's job is to show us, oh, we were wrong about sin. It is a big deal. This is the God who made us we're talking about. This is the God who gives us every breath we've ever taken. The God who feeds us. The God on whom our whole lives depend. It is a big deal to sin against that God. The helper shows us that that's true. We're worse off than we realized. What about righteousness? The helper's job is to show the world they were wrong about righteousness. When it comes to righteousness, the helper's job is to show you you're not nearly as good as you think you are. <laughs> verse 10, look at verse 10 again. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. I think what Jesus has in mind here is that his, his job on earth, when you have been able to see him, one of the main things he was doing with his time was going around pointing out that people weren't as righteous as they thought they were. He loved to go to religious professionals, to the guys who looked like they had it all together, who'd made a name for themselves by getting everything right and by pointing out all that everyone else was getting wrong. He went to those people and he would say, oh, righteousness is not what you think it is. You think you're measuring up to the right standard, but that's because you set the bar too low. I just wrapped up my first season as a head baseball coach yesterday. Finished off the season with a 15 to 14 win. The white jerseyed East Nashville Fall five and six year old coach pitch team beat the black jerseyed East Nashville Fall five and six year old coach pitch team under my leadership. <laughs> now, compared to those five and six year old players on my team, I have got insane baseball skills. I've got a raw ability you would not believe if you saw it. I can throw the ball up with one hand, take the bat and simultaneously hit it and crush it all the way past the infield almost every time. <laughs> I can feel the ball, stand right by third base. I can throw it and in the air, it goes all the way to first. I can catch basically anything thrown my way. If it's, if it's within a few feet of my body, I catch it almost every single time. You would not believe my skills at baseball. If you compare me to my five and six-year-old coach pitch team, if you compare me to Aaron Judge, home run record-breaking player for the New York Yankees, if you compare me to my five and six-year-old coach pitch team, I'm righteous. I'm worthy. I measure up. You compare me to Aaron Judge, not righteous, not worthy. I, I do not 
measure up. What we tend to do on our own in, in the world, when we're in the world, those who are not living as if God is a thing, what we tend to do is elevate standards we already know we can meet. We tend to compare ourselves where the comparisons will work in our favor. Those are the standards where we can rise above the crowd. That's the ones we want to focus on. But then Jesus comes along and he says, no, your standards are way off. You think you're righteous because you're looking in the wrong place for righteousness. Jesus has been doing this throughout John's gospel. There's this one place in John where Jesus, Jesus gets into a, a back and forth debate with the Pharisees, these religious rule keepers who really believed they were righteous, who were getting on to him for what they thought was him not being righteous. He had healed someone on the Sabbath. Jesus pushes back to him. He says, you are seeing the rule and missing the person. This man needed healing. The Sabbath is no pre prevention of me doing the thing that this man needs. I love this man. I can help this man. I will help this man. That's righteousness, not this rule that you've set up so that you can obey it perfectly and, and gain some sort of superiority over everybody else. They missed righteousness. They didn't get the point. And the helper's coming now to carry on with what Jesus was doing. Now he's going away. Who's going to do this? Who's going to show us that what looks like righteousness to us isn't? The helper will do that. The helper will go into the world to people who think they're okay as they are and show them they're not. They need something more. And what about judgment? Here, I, this is not a reference to final judgment against them, but to exposing their judgment problems. They are making a judgment about Jesus. We've been seeing this happen all through John. Jesus is a dividing line. Some people say yes to him. Other people say no thanks to him. He's about to be ridden out of the world, literally driven from the world by people who have misjudged him terribly. They thought he was one thing when he's another. And without knowing it, perhaps, they have thrown in with one that Jesus here calls the ruler of this world. They have backed the wrong champion. Theirs will one day be thrown down. How will they know that they've been wrong about Jesus? The helper will come into the world and convict them of their judgment error. That's how they'll know. Friends, if you want to see everything Jesus is talking about right here played out in, in, in a real world example, just this afternoon, go and read Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, is, it's like this was the script that that scene plays out of. Because what, you, what you'll find in Acts chapter 2 is that, that, that all, of the, all of the followers of Jesus, these guys Jesus is talking to right here, have been waiting on him to send this helper he promised to send. Jesus had told them, don't go anywhere until the helper comes. When the Spirit comes, you'll receive power, and then you'll be my witnesses. But stay there and wait and pray until he comes. And then he comes. What happens next? What's the first thing they do when they get this helper that Jesus told them he would send? They go right out into the same city full of people who had just had Jesus crucified like a few weeks ago, and they preach to that city about Jesus. They preach the same message that had gotten Jesus killed. And what happens? Peter stands up and he preaches his, his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. He tells them about their sin. He tells them they'd misjudged Jesus. You thought he was a fraud, but he's not. He's alive again. You backed the wrong champion. 
And Acts 2.37 says what happened next. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Think about that, friends. This is the crowd of people who had so recently wanted Jesus dead. They hated him right out of the world. And now they want him more than anything. That's because Jesus went to the Father. That's because Jesus sent the Helper. That's because the Helper came into the world that had rejected Jesus, that would otherwise reject Jesus, and convicted the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's what he's doing today. Friend, if you're here and not yet a Christian this morning, and maybe, maybe came in here wondering whether what Christians say about sin is worth considering seriously, or maybe wondering, feeling some of your own inadequacy, whether you are what you're supposed to be. Or maybe you came in here because you're looking for more perspective on what matters in life and you're not sure you've been living with the right set of perspectives. Would you be willing to ask God, even if you're not sure that he's there, would you be willing this morning to ask God to show you what's true about yourself and about him? It may be that this helper, this Holy Spirit, will be the answer to your prayer. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you're only a Christian because you now see sin, your sin, not somebody else's, as a big problem, too big for you to solve. You're only a Christian this morning because you've recognized your best righteousness isn't nearly righteous enough, not for the standard set by our pure and holy God. And if you're a Christian this morning, it's because you've seen that nothing but Jesus is worth trusting with your life. Nothing but Jesus is worth living for. And if you've seen all that about yourself and about him, do you know why you see it? You only see it because God sent a helper to show you what you couldn't see otherwise. Whatever you see, you see through eyes that he has opened before you. Praise God for this gift of grace that he's given you. And if you're a Christian this morning and you're seeing all of this now, here's something else you know if you're thinking straight. You know that if this helper can get through to your heart, this helper can get through to anybody. There is no one beyond the reach of this gospel backed by the power of this God. Don't ever give up on evangelism and prayer. Don't ever give up on your friends and family who seem to have no interest in Jesus now. If you think it's up to you to convince someone else that sin is a big deal, that all our best righteousness isn't good enough, that, 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 that we've been wrong about the good life all along, if you think it comes down to, to you and how persuasive you can be, you will not be able to face up to this task over the long haul. I know from experience, because all too often I have held back from telling people about Jesus because I wasn't sure I'd be able to answer all the questions they might have or because I felt like maybe I'd be exposed as a fool for not having a faith that's as reasonable as what they'll expect it to be. How many times have we not shared about Jesus because we are afraid of our own limitations? 
But Jesus is telling us here, get over yourself. You are not the point. You aren't the message and you aren't the power that backs the message. You are just the delivery system for the message. So share it and watch me work. Don't stop praying. Don't stop looking for the right opportunity to share. Because of the Spirit, no one is ever beyond the reach of the gospel. That's point number one. The helper helps us see our need for Jesus. But much more quickly today, I want, you, I want to show you in this next section that the helper helps us see the goodness of Jesus. And if you think about that first section as, as the helper showing a sense of need, think about the second section that Jesus speaks to us in as, as the helper showing us Jesus fits that need. If the, if, if the helper's job is to show a cavernous, unfillable hole, unfillable by anything else. The helper's job is also to say, show that Jesus plugs into it like a puzzle piece perfectly matched to all of, its, of what's empty. The helper helps us see the goodness of Jesus. Look with me back at verse 12 to verse 15. Especially look with me at verse 13. What is the helper's job? This helper who he's sending. This one who makes it good that he's going away, not bad. Well, verse 13 when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. In verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. What's all this? What does it mean that the Spirit, the Helper, will guide us into all the truth? Verse 13. He'll show us which stock tips to act on. He'll show us where to go to college. He'll show us whom to marry. Oh, it's much more specific than that. He will guide us into all truth. Then Jesus carries it on. For he'll speak what he hears. What I get from the Father, I pass on to him, and he passes on to you. He'll speak what is to come. Not soothsaying, not declaring the future so that we know everything and can act on it and maximize our profits on Wall Street. No, what I'm doing and will do, he'll show to you. Because he'll not speak on his own authority. He will speak about what is mine, which has been given to me by my Father. When Jesus... When Jesus lays out these phrases, he's using language he's used before in John. It always refers to how he and his father worked out the plan to save us from sin. This is how he talks about what he came here to do in the first place. And if this plan is something between him and his father, what he's saying now is that the Spirit's job will be to show us the plan. The Spirit's job will be to, to open up our hearts so that we can understand and love what he's doing in the world. So that we're insiders into his work, not outsiders. But the centerpiece for all of it is his work. It's him. It's who Jesus is and what Jesus has said and what Jesus is going to do. Verse 14 sums it all up. What's the Spirit's job? What will he show us about Jesus? Verse 14, he will glorify me. That's what he'll do. The Spirit's job is to make Jesus seem glorious to those who follow him. 
He'll take what's true about Jesus and drive it deep, deep down so we love what's true about Jesus. That's what the helper does. And friends, the implications of this are vast and they are glorious. Chew on it with me for a minute. Hey, this, what Jesus is telling us here about the helper's job in our lives as Christians, it has to affect where we look for the Spirit's influence in our lives, for example. What the Spirit shows us is very, very specific. He is a specific person with a specific job to do. The Spirit is not like a new and improved sixth sense, you know, like a seventh sense so that you always know what's going on and read the moment perfectly or give you insight into what other people are thinking or what they're doing. And the Spirit isn't some sort of Jiminy Cricket style life coach, you know, who whispers in your ear and words only you can hear so that you know what to do and when. That's not what Jesus says the helper does. The Spirit is not what makes you feel really, really strongly about something, that something is the right thing to do. We have to be careful not to take something we're convinced of and apply the authority of God to it and say, well, that must be the Spirit telling me to do this thing. And therefore, God backs whatever it is I want to do. That's not the way the Bible talks about the Spirit. We don't have the right to say that kind of thing about Him. No, Jesus is telling us what He does. His focus is always on Jesus. His job is to, is to unpack what belongs to Jesus and to show us what Jesus has done already and to show us what Jesus is going to do before the end of time. His job is to take what's true about Jesus and make him appear to our hearts and our minds with the glory that he ought to have, the glory that is rightly his. I, I love the way this one writer put it. Jesus, or the Spirit's job rather, it, it, the Spirit is the guide and, and the Son, Jesus, he's the destination. The Spirit's job is to take us to Jesus. Or here's another one. The, the, the New Testament describes the church as the bride of Christ. All of his people are, are, are married to him in a deep and intimate relationship of love. If that's true, and Christ is the groom and the church is his bride, think of the Spirit as the matchmaker. The Spirit is the one who unites us to Jesus and shows us what we have in him. What Jesus tells us here affects where we ought to be looking for the Spirit in our lives and, and where we ought not to be looking for him in our lives. What Jesus tells us about the helper also affects our calling to live in the world as his, as his people. And last week we talked about how he sends us out into a world that won't like Jesus on their own. He warns his followers that they'll be hated because of him, be rejected because of him. In other words, he even said that because you're with me, you may be cut out of your own families. You'll be put out of the synagogue like a cancer, dangerous to what matters most to them. The world will say at every turn, Jesus has warned us, the world will say, Jesus is a fraud. What are you doing with him? Jesus is a fool. You're foolish for following him. Jesus is dangerous. His rules are, are antisocial. You can't, you can't have him and a place with us. That's what Jesus said you should expect from the world. And if you're living in the world, that's a real powerful voice to listen to day in and day out. Maybe you can relate. When I was in grad school, I, I was surrounded mostly by people who didn't believe in Jesus as, as I did, who didn't understand him from the scriptures in the same way I did or trust the scriptures in the same way I did. And a lot of my beliefs about Jesus were just outright foolishness to the people that I lived my life with most of the days. And these were really smart people, the kind of people that you're drawn to and, and want to be like. 
Sometimes Christian friends then would, t- would ask me if it was tough to hold on to my faith in an environment like that one. And I remember what, what I would say to them, what I'd still say now, is that it was rarely ever hard to hear some specific argument against my faith. Like some, some reason, some case against something specific about Jesus. Usually we could go back and forth on that and at least come to a draw, but I wasn't that persuaded by it. What was hard was just living and breathing in, a, in an air that didn't take Jesus seriously. Even worse, that, that didn't see Jesus as plausible at all. Over time, it's just tough to live in a place where your main influences are going to undermine your confidence about Jesus directly and indirectly. If that's where you live, and I know many of you do live like that, how do you keep growing in faith? How how do you prevent your foundation from eroding little by little, drip by drip by drip? What you need, if that's you, is a helper. You need someone whose job is to take what's true of Jesus, even if it's denied by everyone else around you, and open your heart to that truth, to take you deeper and deeper into it so that you see and taste his goodness for yourself. And friends, what Jesus has said here, what a beautiful reminder of who God is to us in our lives, of his grace to us in sharing this gift with us. Through his spirit, this helper, he's not just given us new insight or information. He's not just given us a new present like a shiny new Xbox or a new outfit to enjoy. When Jesus gives us his helper, he's giving us the gift of himself. He's drawing us in to him. Some of my favorite gifts that my kids have given me over the years have been articles of clothing whereby they invite me into what they love. I got a pair of socks with sharks all over them because sharks are awesome to them. I've got a t-shirt with the original Star Wars movie poster right on the front. I got another t-shirt that in a single graphic manages to intertwine all of the major themes, characters, and plot turns of the entire Lord of the Rings saga. One graphic. You really got to look at that one to get it. These aren't items I would have necessarily chosen off the rack. But these things mean the world to me because, at least for right now, my boys want me in their world. They want to show me what they see and love in these worlds. They want me to love what they love so much. These gifts are personal to them. In a way, these gifts are them giving themselves to me. That's at least a little bit like what God, on on a scale nearly infinite, beyond imagining, has given to us in the gift of his spirit. God has been perfectly happy for all of eternity because for all of eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have had a crystal clear picture window view, front row seat into the most glorious, the most satisfying, the most wonderful reality that is. The Father has been looking at the Son, has been looking at the Spirit, has been looking at the Father, has been looking at the Son, has been looking at the Spirit, on and on and on and on and on for all eternity. And now the Word is put on flesh and dwelt among us so that we can see His glory full of grace and truth. But that wasn't all. Now the Father has sent us a helper 
whose job is to take what we saw in Jesus, hold it up, and open up our hearts so that we see what he has seen for all of eternity. He wants us in that infinite circle of love. He wants us enjoying what he knows will satisfy in a way nothing else ever could. This helper is our invitation into the life of God to see it and to know him for ourselves. There could be no greater gift than this one. The helper is how we know and love God. Would you join me in thanking God for this gift? Oh, Father. Though we do not enjoy what you've given us or do not deserve it and and could not repay you for what you've given us, we do embrace what you have given us and we give you thanks. And we ask you that as you've given us this gift, you would also give us the ability day by day to enjoy it more and more and more to see and love Jesus more and more deeply until he comes again. When seeing him, then as he is, we will be made like him. We pray that you would hold us until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.